This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. You're listening to the Danny Mac podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Thank you for giving me some time. I'm Dan McNeil, and this is the Danny Mac podcast on the Bet Rivers Podcast Network. This, the first show into the NFL's offseason. No Super Bowl stuff to do with you today. I do have some NFL nuggets I want to get to in just a little bit, but settling into an offseason and with less intensity coming in as I often did on Monday mornings for 20 some weeks with a big, you know, bulging notebook of NFL stuff from the weekend. Now it's all speculation and draft preparation, free agent conversation, because that comes before the draft. And we also have a combine we'll be paying attention to in just a matter of days in downtown Indiana, as I like to refer to it, Indianapolis, a lot of people don't get that joke. Isn't it kind of an obvious joke if you say downtown Indiana? It sort of means the entire state has, there's nothing there, really. That's not, people don't get that. I guess it's not a very good joke when you have to explain the damn thing. I will jump in the mailbag in just a little bit. Here comes Mackie's mailbag. Got your emails, faxes, and your notes. For those of you who are old fans of the Tony Kornheiser show, you might remember that jiggle jingle. I know Adam Delavitt, baby Capone at Bet Rivers knows it, and he has been trying to encourage me to get you involved in these podcasts, and I'm all for it. We don't have the immediacy of being live. I can't read your text messages regarding the content as I'm giving it, as we used to do in the good old days of terrestrial radio. Uh, I don't take phone calls. I don't play voicemails, but I am capable of asking you now and again on social media, Twitter and Facebook, for your questions and comments about things that are going on in sports or things that are going on with the podcast. And I've got four or five good ones I will get to at the conclusion of today's show. And I do call it a show because that's what it, that's really what it is. It's a different kind of a show, but it's still a show. A bastardization of Dick Duran years ago on the score. Uh, it's not his show. He's just on that show. Patrick Kane had the hat trick. Yes, I'm leading with hockey today. Patrick Kane had the hat trick last night as the Hawks beat the Maple Leafs 5-3 to at the United Center. It was the second biggest crowd of the season for the Blackhawks. More than 20,000 fans were on hand to take this in. Kane has been really cold of late. He had a couple of goals in a win. I think it was against Ottawa on Friday night and then the hat trick last night. And I think there's an obvious explanation for the huge crowd. 
it's not because the Maple Leafs have a good shot at coming out of the Eastern Conference. Right now, the Leafs have the fourth seed in the East. It's because of the possibility you're looking at Kane in his last days in a Blackhawks uniform. And I understand the sentimental want a Hawks fan who was passionate about the Cups earned in 2010, 13, and 15, getting a chance to see Kane, who's now 34, in his 16th season, skate one last time in a Blackhawks uniform. And if that was the motivation for 10,000 of the 20-plus who were there last night, boy, were they treated, were they given the perfect curtain closer. If that's the last time they see 88 in a Blackhawks sweater, they couldn't have picked a better night because those guys, I saw all the highlights today. They were terrific, very Canian performance as his career potentially as a Blackhawk is concluding. He still has good trade value. There are teams who think they can catch lightning in a bottle every year at the NHL's trading deadline, which is the first uh, first week in March, for those of you who weren't sure. So we still have a little ways to go on this thing, almost two full weeks before the trade deadline. And he, of course, has, has total say-so. He has to approve any deals that would that would be made. He has enjoyed his stay in Chicago. I don't know Patrick Kane. I got to know him a little bit. His rookie season, when he won the Calder Trophy for the Rookie of the Year, the Blackhawks were not a playoff team that year. 07-08, Dennis Savard. Uh, that was his first full season, his only full season, as head coach of the Blackhawks, and they just missed the playoffs. And then the next year, Savvy is fired four games in. Joel Quinville takes over. And Kane and Taves, then in their second year, get all the way to the Western Conference Finals where the Hawks got popped by the Red Wings. And then the next year, Kane's third year in the league, they win the Cup, his dramatic Game 6 overtime game winner, the, the goal that only three people in the world saw, Kane, Patrick Sharp, Brent Seabrook, sticks and gloves go in the air, and everybody's saying, why? What the hell happened? Where's the puck? It was hidden underneath the padding in the Flyers' goal. On the right post to the left side of goaltender Michael Layton, and it just kind of nestled underneath that padding, and nobody saw it except those three Hawks I mentioned. You wait 49 years to celebrate your team finally winning a championship, and you have no idea why they're jumping around and celebrating. How did we win that championship? And you don't see the highlight for, in my case, an hour and a half later, standing in a long line with other media to get on the ice at the then Wachovia Center. I'm drifting here a little bit, and my apologies for that, but it's it's emblematic of how any Hawks fan, and I am Big Chief Mac Hawk at heart, despite my indifference over the last several seasons. You reflect on so many great moments because it is a Hall of Fame career, not just for Kane, but for the aforementioned captain, Jonathan Taves, who also could be moved. Though you're really rolling dice on him this year. He's been unavailable. Long COVID has has been the explanation given. Now, is there truth to it? There could be. There could be something seriously wrong with the immune system of Taves. He missed an entire season in recent years. Plus, he doesn't have the wheels anymore. 
I know he's only a few years removed. I think five years removed now, long after they were winning cups, several years after they last were a cup contender, when Taves had his career best in points. It seems like a long time ago now. Um, He's a lot older at 34 than Kane is at the same age. Patrick Kane is the greatest American-born player ever to play for the Blackhawks. That's as far as I'm willing to go today. I'm not going to tell you until I talk with people who are more expert at it than I am if his impact in the NHL equals that of Brett Hull. Brett Hull crushed him in career goals. There, Kane would have to play another 12 years to get to Brett Hull's numbers. Now, there was an era when the numbers were extremely inflated, when guys were scoring 70 and 80 goals a year. Brett Hull finished with 741 goals. Patrick Kane, after the hat last night, is at 444. Or as Moses Malone used to say, fo, fo, fo. Uh, they're going to sweep every series the rest of the way. Moses, what would it take to get the Sixers a championship? Fo, fo, fo. Win four more, four more, and four more. Fo, fo, fo. So Kane is at fo, fo, fo. He should be much higher in terms of his career assists, Mark. He didn't have the benefit of playing with some great playmakers like some other guys who I thought had similar skills. Kane, a more prolific goal scorer than Adam Oates, but a very handsy player like the former Blues centerman who did a lot of the feeding of Brett Hull during their tremendous run together in St. Louis. I'd have to talk to a handful of guys. I'd call Eddie Olchick. I'd pick his brain. I'd talk to Steve Conroy, who'd been in the league since the early 80s and see what he thinks about it, I'd probably want to talk to Pat Foley. In fact, I can talk with Pat about this this Friday as he guests on my terrestrial radio show in Northwest Indiana at Bridges Scoreboard Restaurant and Sports Bar. It's no cover charge. If you wanted to attend, it's this coming Friday. You should make a reservation for a table, though, because the room is going to be full. That number, 219-924-2206. That's this coming Friday, the 24th of February, The show is between noon and two, and Pat will stick around until three o'clock. But I would want to pick the brains of three or four, maybe even a few more NHL experts, NFL always on the brain, to see what they think as to whether Kane is the most prolific American-born. I give him the nod over Jeremy Roenick in Hawks history. I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think there's much argument there. Roenick finished with 513 goals. He should be in the NHL's Hall Hall of Fame. But he wore six or seven other sweaters. 16 years, Kaner's only been with the Hawks. And oh, by the way, three championship banners hang from the building. And he was as responsible as anybody for the three of them. The NHL does not award a a most valuable player for the the cup final like they do in baseball, like the Super Bowl comes down to one game. The NBA Finals is a series award for the MVP. In hockey, they look at the balance of what you did over four series. 
And that first cup may never have happened if it weren't for Kane's magic in game game five in the first round of 2010. Nashville had the Hawks on the ropes. The Predators, had they finished game five at the United Center with a win, would have gone back to Nashville up three to two in the series. And they had a team that was capable of penetrating the Blackhawks' keep-away style. They frustrated the Hawks. Hawks in that era playing that globetrotter style of keep-away. Nashville had a remedy for it. But with Marion Hossa in the box for a major penalty, Patrick Kane with no goalie in the Hawks' net, Quinville had pulled Antiniemi, tied the game with 13.4 left, I think. And then Hosa gets out of the box to score the game winner. The Hawks take a 3-2 series lead to Nashville, go on and win the cup. Kane was given the MVP, the Conn Smythe, for his work over the, over the long haul in the series against the light or against the uh the Bruins that playoff series in 2013 easily could have gone to Corey Crawford I think if if memory serves Kane suggested it should go to Corey Crawford he's going to wind up one of the greatest Blackhawks of all time and so will Jonathan Taves their jersey numbers will hang from the United Center rafters one day they should That should be a joint ceremony, and while you're at it, Duncan Keith's number two also should be raised the same night. Is that where it ends for these Hawks and retired jersey numbers? You want to retire Corey Crawford's 50 as well? Hosts' 81 is already up. At what point do people start screaming for Patrick Sharp's number 10 and Brent Seabrook's number 7? That's a, you know, at some point you run out of jerseys. You can't retire six or seven sweaters from one era. You can't do that. Then you wind up being the Bears and all those players with jerseys, jersey numbers that are retired, even though they haven't won many championships. They lead the NFL and retired jerseys. Kane has provided some great memories. It is time for the Blackhawks to cut the cord. It's one of the more emotionally draining experiences as a fan. But you know when your franchise has reached the depths to which the Hawks have slipped, anything that gives you a chance to better your team, two or three, and I know Hawks fans are sick of hearing this, two or three years down the line, you take it. If you can get draft picks that are high, if you can get young prospects you believe can be a part of something special, can be core players, you take that chance and you move Kane. To Toronto. Great fit for him. Not Buffalo, his hometown, but the closest NHL city to Buffalo. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to remember Patrick Kane, two separate guys, as, as you do with, with anybody who has had things off the field, in this case, off the ice. Certainly a guy who didn't handle his success very well earlier in his career and the cabbie incident back in Buffalo and some of the erratic behavior. Uh, showed on several occasions that he was going to be problematic when large amounts of alcohol were were ingested. Uh, reason to believe he wasn't a very good guy. On the ice, one of the most exciting players in team history. The most accomplished American-born NHL player in Blackhawks history. 
No question about that. League history, need more opinions on it. People in Minnesota, Dallas might tell you, Mike Madano. It's a great Pat Foley name. Kicked in by Madano. Uh, that he's a, a more, you know, a better all-around player than Patrick Kane. Not ready to go there, but I'm considering Brett Hull. So we move on to NFL player movement, which is, and in specific today, I want to go over wide receivers for a few minutes with you. Do you think the Bears could use help at wide receiver? How many years have you been saying that? Well, you look at the top five in franchise history in receiving yards or receptions, and it is easy to be terribly frustrated because guys who wore leather chin straps, and in one case, maybe even a leather helmet, are still in the top five. Johnny Morris remains the Bears' all-time leading receiver. You still have Harlan Hill from the University of Michigan who played end. That's what it says on his pro football reference. That's how long ago it was he played end. They didn't call him wide receivers. Walter Payton remains the top five guy. Mike freaking Ditka is fifth. In career yards, time for the Bears to have some guys over a long stretch who can change that terrible history. It is a bad, bad history. Now, I saw a story on NFL.com over the weekend where the writer is speculating this up this offseason we now find ourselves in is going to produce some of the same excitement last year's did when it comes to seeing the top names at the receiver position get moved. And he points to the three big ones of a year ago, the Packers dealing Devontae Adams to the Raiders, Tyreek Hill sent from Kansas City to Miami, A.J. Brown dealt by Tennessee to the Eagles, and all three of them had huge seasons. This year, the writer speculates, you will see similar movement with T. Higgins of Cincinnati, with Mike Evans of Tampa, and with DeAndre Hopkins of the Arizona Cardinals. Should the Bears be a player for any of those three? All of you who are confident Chase Claypool is the player they thought he was when they traded a second-round pick to Pittsburgh for him, raise your hand. I'm not convinced either. Let's say Claypool is a contributing factor, but never gets to the level he he enjoyed for one season with the Steelers and still never has been what the the player they thought they were getting when they drafted him i'm i'm not i'm not willing to think he's ever going to be a guy you win because of a guy like adams or hill or brown i mean look at what these guys did this year Devontae Adams, pencil him in for a hundred and fifteen hundred every year. Now fifteen hundred not among the best four or five in the league this year, but he had fourteen touchdowns. That was tops in the league. Tyree Kill had seven forty or more yard receptions. That was tops in the league. He had seventeen plus. Uh, 1,700 plus receiving yards, second only to Justin Jefferson of the Vikings. A.J. Brown was one of the biggest reasons the Eagles were so good offensively and got to the Super Bowl. 11 touchdowns for A.J. Brown, huge target, almost 1,500 yards. 
a significant difference maker. T. Higgins, Mike Evans, and DeAndre Hopkins are not those three players. So the, the thesis of this article is a reach at best. But examining guys who could be on their way out, I say pass, pass, pass on Higgins, Evans, and Hopkins. They are not the same players they used to be. Maybe Higgins is is still young enough where he can continue to grow. If I could have DeAndre Hopkins of four years ago, yeah, can't have that guy. Mike Evans missed an entire year a few years ago, is going to be 30. He's also a hothead. He doesn't make huge plays anymore. And T. Higgins, to me, is 21st century Alvin Harper. For those of you who don't get the reference, go back to the early 90s Cowboys when the big three were Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin. They also had a terrific tight end in Jay Novacek. Alvin Harper benefited from, number one, a running game because you had to respect Emmett Smith. I mean, you, you couldn't not pay attention to the Cowboys running game. You had to. So Michael Irvin is going to get a lot of attention. That means Alvin Harper is going to benefit by being single coverage most of his Cowboys career. And his numbers were good. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, still wearing uh, pumpkin, the uh, the, cream, the dreamsicle Buccaneers, orange, uh, make a big deal, make a, make a huge offer to Alvin Harper, huge at the time, thinking he's going to be their new number one. Never happened for him. Alvin Harper was just a guy the rest of his NFL career. And that will be said of T. Higgins after he leaves Cincinnati, where he has had the benefit of a bona fide number one injuries, you know, aside, Jamar Chase is a number one guy. And like the Cowboys had a tight end, the Bengals had Hayden Hurst this year, maybe a one-year wonder, but he he was a terrific player and a valuable part of that offense, which also had with two guys instead of the Cowboys version of Emmett Smith, they had in P Ryan and uh, uh, Joe Mixon, they had a one, two punch that gave them a good running game. So you're able to get T Higgins and Tyler Boyd opportunities. I don't want any of those three via trade. I say pass, pass, pass on those three. And the list of free agents at wide receiver is not going to knock you out either. Nelson Aguilar, DJ Chark, Alan Lazard, Jacoby Myers, Juju Smith-Schuster. Of all the free agent wide receivers, Juju Smith-Schuster caught the most, most balls last year. He had 78 catches. That's the best of the bunch. Demarcus Robinson, Marquise Goodwin, McCole Hardman, Marvin Jones. Not much out there. Not anything that says, this is a number one. You got better supporting players on that list than what the Bears have right now. If you never see Dante Pettis, uh, other than as a special teams player, and maybe at the end of your depth chart as a wide receiver, you're going to be good with that. But none of these guys are a one. Uh, There is... One guy in the draft, I find, and I haven't seen a lot of him play. He looks great on highlights, but who doesn't when you Google his highlights? Uh, he's supposed to be the first player drafted at wide receiver, and most 
experts are saying it's a lousy class of wide receivers, but Quinton Johnston of TCU is supposed to be the first wideout chosen. He's got your NFL size that's typical in today's game at 6'4 and 215. He also runs a 4'4, which makes him very appealing. I'd, I'd be more inclined to, and I don't know where Johnston is going to go in the draft. The Bears, of course, can get anybody they want. They're sitting at one, trade down for, you know, wherever you have to, to, you know, give yourself a real good chance of getting this guy. If he's the guy you believe can be a number one. The history at the position for the Bears in the first round is not good, but it that doesn't matter. That is because Curtis Conway didn't work out 30 freaking years ago. That's no reason to back off of it here. And I wonder if that's been a part of team thinking and not drafting offensive linemen high because they've had so many failures in the past. You get a Chris Williams, a Jerry Angelo pick who never could get out of the hot tub in training camp and others. Uh, the goof from Wisconsin, Gabe Karimi, there have been other guys they drafted high as tackles who didn't work out. So you wonder, is that why they're bashful? Is that why they're afraid to go after Riley reef of Iowa or David DeCastro, a guard from Cal the year they drafted the linebacker pass rusher from Boise, Shea McClellan. I almost forgot his name. They picked him at 19 when there were good offensive linemen on the board. Not happy about that at the time, but I'm not holding it against them today. One other guy who's going to be fun to watch, and I do have moles going to the combine. Uh, North Carolina has a little bitty guy named Josh Downs who is not going to be, he likely won't be among the top five receivers drafted, certainly not top three, but he might sneak into the top five based on where I see some people uh, have him ranked. He's 5'10 and 175. 5'10, 175. But here's the rub. He has 4'3'4 speed. That's the fastest of anybody coming into the draft, I think. Certainly it is at wide receiver. There might be a corner who can outrun him, but God, that's cooking. Josh Downs of North Carolina. Four consecutive 1,000-plus-yard receiving seasons with that little bitty, little bitty body. Hey, Tyreek Hill's not a big dude, and look what he did this year. He had 17-plus 100 yards. Second time I've done that. 1,700-plus yards. Pretty damn good for a guy who isn't huge. There are other guys. Antonio Brown wasn't six feet tall. And for five years, he was the best at the game in every category. At 5'11", Antonio Brown. All right, lastly, I would like to, uh, I would like to cover uh, these, these letters. And if you... Uh, comments, letters. If you want to get to me on Twitter at Danny Mac show, Facebook, it's simple. D-A-N-M-C-N-E-I-L. On Facebook, a question from Tom Hummel, who wanted to know about the possibility of doing any reunion podcast down the road with uh, any of the score originals, the four, uh, the, the score horsemen, if you will, Mike North, 
Dan Jiggets and Terry Bores, and Tom accurately asks uh, health, or put in parentheses, health permitting, of course, and that is an issue. Terry's been a mess for a little while. I have, I've not had any contact with Jiggets. I've heard him on the radio recently, recently being within the last year, and he sounded fine. I'd, I'd be happy to blow in a call to Jigs and check his temperature on it. Mike North, the answer is yes, and um, stay tuned. I will get you more information on uh, what level of partnership I'm going to have with Mike North in the months ahead, uh, months ahead, not necessarily here on the podcast, but in life, as they say, coach. So yeah, I will definitely uh, get Northy on. I've been greenlighted by Danny Zetterman at ESPN 1000, the director of content, to feel free to use any of their personalities on the podcast here. And uh, Mike is an employee of ESP at 1000. He and Carmen DeFalco do a handicapping show on a regular basis. My guy, Carm. Um, all right, let me get to a few more questions. This is from Tipsy McStagger. That's his Twitter handle, Tipsy McStagger. What is your biggest disappointment as a Chicago sports fan? It's easy for me. It's the 90-91 Blackhawks getting bounced in the first round by the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, broke my heart. The Hawks had the best team in the league in the regular season. They won the president's trophy with 106 points. That's when 106 points meant something. Uh, St. Louis was right behind them at 105 and the Hawks were an exciting team. They were a team that would just throw the puck in off the glass, bury your face against the glass, dig out loose pucks and get those greasy goals in front of the net. Offensively, they were led by Jeremy Roenick and Steve Larmer. They had some exciting players at the blue line, too. Doug Wilson still was a Hawk. Chris Chelios, Dave Manson was a rising star and a tough guy. They also were deep with grinders. Guys like Greg Gilbert, Adam Creighton, Steve Thomas, um, Steve Conroy was a steady blue liner. Bob McGill had the best year of his career in 1991. I think he played in 76 games or so. Uh, did Big Daddy, who was much more of a of a goon uh, when he was a Maple Leaf uh, involved in the Eddie Olchick trade. But that team captured my imagination during the regular season. They were the best in the league. I also was very close to those guys in age. Full disclosure, I was around the rink all the time. I probably covered 30 home games and went downstairs. I probably went to a half a dozen practices, went downstairs to do interviews. The guys regularly came on the show. I was the only guy in town who was pushing hockey on the radio. The score had yet to be born. I was doing it on the old AM loop producing Chet Kopic's show. But I got close to those guys. Not necessarily friendships, but friendly. I was rooting for them. And they lost their minds during the first round. Minnesota goaded them into taking stupid penalties, game misconducts, 10-minute misconducts, retaliation penalties. Chelios was in the box the whole series. Captain Dirk Graham, too. Hell, I think Michelle Goulet might have even earned a 10-minute misconduct. They lost to the North Stars, the eighth seed in what used to be the Campbell Conference. Now it's the West. Minnesota finished with 67 or 68 points. But they caught the Hawks at the right time. Minnesota got hot late in the year. Uh, the aforementioned Mike Madano, Neil Broughton, 
Oh, God. Uh, Brian Bellows. John Casey was in goal. And uh, they beat the Hawks in six games. Minnesota went on to make it to the final that year. They lost to the Penguins in 91, the first of two straight cup titles for the Penguins. They'd beat the Hawks the following year. So answer the question, long-winded, tipsy McStagger, the 91 Hawks, biggest heartbreak of my sportsman career in Chicago. Dan Martin has golf on his mind. He got to me via Twitter and wants to know when it's okay to move up to the white tees and feel good about your scorecard. If you shoot 80 from the white tees, is it tainted? No. No, it's not. I think when you clear 60 and some courses start giving senior rates at 55, I've enjoyed that in the last few years, but I've lost like a lot of guys do. When you lose strength, you lose muscle. Club head speed goes with it. You lose length off the tee. The tee isn't my only problem on the golf course. But no, I think when you get past 60, it's fine to shoot from the whites and say, I broke 80 if you can do that. I won't be able to do that ever again. I've only broken 80 once in my life, and it was on a par 70 course. I'm coming back from a nerve system total failure, so I don't even know if golf is in the cards for me this year. I might be able to play uh, around the green, but I don't know if I'll be able to take the club head all the way back and, and deliver a blow of, of any of any consequence. But I think uh, you're just fine, Dan, going to the white tees. Recognize who we are um, and accept who we are for the first 60 years and then after 60, accept who we are not and uh, and take that score. And if you want to go another level, let me give you a scoring system that I found to be quite beneficial for those of us who are working, uh, who are weekend warriors and not good golfers, there is absolutely nothing wrong with deploying the Shelbourne scoring system. And that is when you make a bogey, you've made par. Most of us strive to be bogey golfers, don't we? If you write down a 90, do you feel okay? I do. I'm all right with 90. I've only had a handful of rounds in the last 10 years that were below 90, and I've yet to break 40 on a side. I should have three years ago, but I three-jacked the ninth green and made a 40. Um, so I, I don't have any, any issue whatsoever with deploying the Shelbourne system. That way, if you shoot 95 and you come back into the clubhouse, hit the 19th hole, always the favorite. And they say, how'd you shoot today? Well, I was five over. Five over? No kidding. I shot a 95. But it's the Shelbourne scoring system. As we recognize, we're not pro golfers. We ain't even low handicap golfers. Thank you, Coach Shelbourne, for deploying that system, putting that in my head years ago. Last question uh, I've got for you today. This was on Twitter. Mo. He calls himself Mo. And he is curious about my personal top 10 all-time sports yackers in Chicago. Wow. You're going to ask me to give you 10. In no particular order, Mike North, Terry Bores, Dan Bernstein. Uh, reluctantly, Mike Mulligan. Brian Hanley. He and Mully put too many, too many skins on the wall to be excluded from a top 10. 
I'll give you Mark Silverman, and I'll throw in Tom Waddle. I'd like to throw in Danny Parkins and Matt Spiegel. Do they have the tenure? I don't know. I haven't thought about this very long. David Kaplan and Jonathan Hood. Now, Kaplan's been doing it on the air for a long, long time. But if you go back to the GN days, that was almost invariably evenings, right? I mean, does it count when you're not in a major day part? Just asking. I don't know. And Hood, while he's been good in several different spots, has not had the longevity in either in, in any of his, I think coming up on two years with, with Kaplan. And I enjoy that show, but I, I'm probably not answering the question. So I got North Boers, Bernstein, Mulligan, Hanley. That's five Sylvie Waddle. That's seven. Yurko is eight. I I can't count myself, right? <laughs> Um, boy, can I get the 10? Do I give you Copic for being the godfather at all of it all? I guess I could. I'm not going to give you Swirsk though. He gets in the, he's a bulls announcer to me. Anybody who writes an autobiography and goes on the radio and says, this is not a tell all. I can't put on my list of all time talk show hosts. I'm sorry. If it's not a tell all, why the hell are you doing it? Um, and he was a mentor to me when I was a young man. So I've given you close to 10 and that's as far as I'm willing to think about it. Okay. Thank you very much for participating. Those of you who sent me questions, I'm going to be back on Thursday. Hope you have a great week. Sam Michael is the executive producer of the Danny Mac podcast. Thank you, Sam and Adam Delibit for making everything happen at Bed Rivers. Have a great week back Thursday. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Danny Mac podcast on the Bet Rivers network. 